This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. On the Insecurities Podcast, we talk a lot about the regulators who enforce the federal securities laws and the web of rules, regulations, and guidance under those laws. We've focused on the SEC, the North American Securities Administrators Association, you know, the other NASA, and the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the PCAOB. And while we've mentioned FINRA on multiple episodes, we've never taken time to focus on the important role FINRA plays in the securities markets, and in particular, FINRA enforcement's work on the front lines of investor protection. Last year on FINRA's own podcast, FINRA Unscripted, FINRA's head of enforcement, Jessica Hopper, had this to say about FINRA enforcement. Quote, My vision for FINRA enforcement is what I believe FINRA enforcement has always been. I look at FINRA enforcement as being tough, but fair. And what that means is that when enforcement is the right regulatory response, that we are thoughtful, we are thorough in our investigation, but we're also quick and nimble and data-driven and effective. I think that's the approach we'd all like to see from any regulator. On this episode, our first focusing exclusively on FINRA, we want to focus on FINRA enforcement. And who better to help us out than our very special guest, Jessica Hopper, today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. I, You know, I can't believe it. This is episode 55, a, a milestone in itself, but how did we get this far? Without a FINRA episode, Chris, what have we been doing, man? I don't know. I mean, I, I can talk to you a little bit about how we need a couple more accounting episodes, but I think that, uh, that, that, that this is the right time and place to, to get into the details of FINRA. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, given how often we talk about Reg BI, do you have the the ticker? Is it still going, Chris? Oh, God, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Excel only has over a million rows, Kurt, so I can't keep track of every mention of Reg BI. Well, it, it's, it, is, it is absolutely high time that we did it. Uh, I do want to give a special shout out to Finner's podcast, uh, Finner Unscripted. It is an excellent listen. Mm-hmm. If you don't already subscribe, you should. You can learn a lot about enforcement, but all of the different uh, divisions within Finner and what the folks are doing over there. So definitely tune into that. But today, we're very fortunate to have with us the head of enforcement, Jessica Hopper. Chris, why don't you give us a little background? Jessica Hopper is Executive Vice President and Head of Enforcement at FINRA, responsible for FINRA's disciplinary actions across the country. Prior to assuming this role in January of 2020, she was Senior Vice President and Deputy Head of Enforcement for four years and Senior Vice President in charge of the Regional Enforcement Program in the 14 FINRA district offices from 2011 to 2016. Hopper joined FINRA in 2004 and was a director in FINRA's Washington, D.C. office until 2011. Prior to joining FINRA, from 2000 to 2004, she was part of Leg Mason Woodwalker Incorporated's legal and compliance team, where her responsibilities focused on retail sales compliance. And she began her career as a litigation attorney in private practice. Jessica, we're very happy to have you on the show today. Welcome to Insecurities. 
Thank you so much. And I'm so glad you're getting to FINRA. I understand that you are saving the best for last, so I appreciate that. <laughs> well, maybe this will be our last episode then. If the, if the director of enforcement wills it, maybe that's, I hope that's not. where we end it. I love it. That, that's, a, that's a tough sanction, but we'll, get, right. we'll come on to the sanctions later. <laughs> it's, Trying to be yeah, tough, but It's fair. good to have you with us. All right, so let's kick off the show with just a, a little bit of a primer on on FINRA and what they do at a high level. Uh, th- this could be a whole show. This could be several shows in itself. Going to try to do it in in just a couple of minutes here. So, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, better known as FINRA, is a government authorized not for profit organization that oversees U.S. broker dealers. Those who have been in the industry for a while might remember that in a previous life, FINRA was the National Association of Securities Dealers, or NASD. FINRA is a self-regulatory organization, or SRO. In fact, it is the largest SRO in the securities industry. As an SRO, FINRA has certain regulatory powers like rulemaking and enforcement, but it is not part of the government. FINRA's mandate focuses on protecting investors by ensuring the broker-dealer industry operates fairly and honestly. And according to FINRA's website, FINRA's goals are to make sure every investor receives the basic protections they deserve, anyone who sells a securities product has been tested, qualified, and licensed, every securities product advertisement used is truthful and not misleading, any securities product sold to an investor is suitable for that investor's needs, and Investors receive complete disclosure about the investment product before purchase. To that end, FINRA oversees more than 3,700 brokerage firms and more than 624,000 registered securities representatives. These are the the people, the brokers that you might interact with at a broker-dealer, like Fidelity, Charles Schwab, Wells Fargo, Edward Jones, TD Ameritrade, LPL, Raymond James, just to name a few of, of the larger brokers. In addition to overseeing brokers, Finner has a a robust market surveillance function, and it relies on innovative AI and machine learning technologies to keep a close eye on the market, and they analyze billions of daily market events. So a a lot going on at Finner, many different divisions within the organization. We're not going to unpack all of them, but just wanted to give that high-level overview before we get into our conversation today with Jessica. Kurt, I think that helps our listeners kind of understand where some of these lines are drawn that we'll talk about today. But outside of just an overview of FINRA, we'd love to hear a little bit of an overview of you, Jessica. You know, you've had a, a great career that's taken you uh, to your current position as a head of enforcement. But, uh, you know, the bio we do up front is never enough to describe the the journey you've taken to get <laughs> to get to where you are. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about you, about your career and how you ended up uh, in the position you're in now. Absolutely. Um, it- the, the bio is helpful, but long before that, I can tell you that I am a Midwesterner, something many people don't know. I grew up outside of Chicago, and I'm the daughter of two immigrants from South America. So um, it was uh, it was a very colorful mm-hmm. childhood. Um, and I went into law for the same reason that many do. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do after college, and I had a t- chance to go to law school on a full ride. So that was a, a, a nice entrance into that option. And I really enjoyed law school. I loved the discussions, loved the analytical thinking. And um, so following law school and after bouncing between a litigation firm and a very brief stint in legal publishing, 
I decided to hit the reset button and when I moved to be with my husband in the Mid-Atlantic. And I joined a super regional broker dealer in Baltimore, like Mason, as you said, um, as a compliance officer. And I loved it. I really love the securities industry. So I did a few years at Leg Mason. And after a few years, I left to do a brief stint as a regulator. And that brief stint has turned into 17 years at FINRA and its predecessor on ASD. So that's a little background on me. One of the interesting things besides your, your love of the compliance and, and securities world is, is really being a homegrown uh, you know, regulator, right? You said 17 years at FINRA. How has it changed over time? How have you seen these things develop? And, and maybe just some general comments on where we were and where we're going. Oh my gosh, so much has changed mm-hmm. over 17 years. And I think you could say that about anything, right? But um, certainly uh, when it comes to FINRA, what comes immediately to mind for me is our technology. So 17 years ago, I started as a staff lawyer and I had my little cubicle in Washington, D.C. And the hallways and all the workspaces, whether it was a cubicle or an office, were lined with bankers' boxes of documents um, with productions from firms. So much of our work was really manual and our investigations and analysis sometimes required uh, lots of manual input of customer account statements into an Excel spreadsheet. Or when we had the luxury of trader blotter data and it was a a lot of lines of data, we could even use Microsoft Access. And that was really it. I know, it was really (laughs) fancy. And I can tell you that few people actually knew how to use Microsoft Access. So that was a real skill. Um, Mm -hmm. And complex investigations were even more difficult because then we would really need to incorporate reference data like Morningstar information or research ratings or or, um, other data to to pair with the trade data that we're seeing to understand what we were looking at. And you can imagine that took a lot of time and resources. And then all that data would be siloed in whatever part of the organization was doing the investigation. So it really took a lot of intentional reach out to the different parts of FINRA to make sure that what we were seeing was on other people's radar. And I can tell you that didn't always happen. So fast forward to 2021, and it's a whole different world, right? We have a consolidated regulatory operations group. And by that, I mean market regulation, member supervision, and enforcement all work really closely together. And we all collectively work with our technology team so that we can create a consolidated data intake and tools to help understand what we're taking in, right? All the information that we have. And so this helps us work from identification uh, of, of information, of red flags, to a regulatory response more quickly. And then that helps protect, you know, both investors in the industry even better. So that's really our regulatory mandate. And look, analytics will touch a lot of aspects of what we do, but most important for us, it will help us quickly work through billions of lines of data and more effectively find where customers are being harmed and who's doing it. And that's really what it's all about. That's helpful. And and I want to get into as well, and and this is where Kurt usually corrects me live (laughs) on the podcast, and then we edit it out later. (laughs) Uh, The the jurisdictional or kind of the oversight um, mission and mandate of FINRA versus the other regulators. You know, Kurt, uh, you made the comment up front about how you prefer all regulators to act, which which may be a little bit biased on the defense side (laughs) from the defense bar. But, you know, I know FINRA and and the SEC work both closely together and are are a very different organization. So can you talk to me a little bit about where the oversight responsibilities are for FINRA and that are distinct from SEC as well as where they may overlap? So, uh, yes, look, we work very closely with the SEC and 
I think you mentioned oversight. Uh, the SEC does have certain oversight responsibilities. So we have two types of relationships with the SEC, just to kind of break this down. The first is the role of oversighted entity by the SEC. And the second is the role of regulator with the SEC. So stepping back, our power as a regulator, as you said, comes from Congress. And the SEC is responsible for, for making sure that we actually fulfill our duties appropriately. And so to give everybody who's listening comfort, the process of their oversight is both constant and robust. So that is our one relationship with the SEC. But the more, um, the more known relationship is with the SEC as a regulator of the securities industry. We're both in that space. And we have coordinated well with the SEC Enforcement Division in particular for years and years, and we work hard to avoid regulatory duplication. I know that's a sore spot for, for people, and I understand why. And sometimes, but rarely, we find that we both have a reason to be involved in the same matter, usually because we have complementary rule sets that apply to the same types of um, facts, right? That could net out multiple violations. But we're always, always conscious of deploying our resources as effectively as possible to fulfill the mission and, you know, to use our, our, uh, our resources in a complementary way to the SEC. But um, as you said, stepping back, it's also important to understand in terms of scope and scale the SEC is far different. The SEC's jurisdiction absolutely dwarfs Fedra's jurisdiction. They have to worry about issuers and exchanges, dark pools, investment advisors, some unregistered individuals, hedge funds, private equity funds. I could go on and on, right? Huge scope. FINRA regulates brokers and broker dealers. That is a very short list. <laughs> That's a small mm -hmm. slice of what the SEC does. But this means FINRA has the benefit of being able to focus on our narrow jurisdiction. And enforcement has an even more discreet role of focusing on the most egregious violations in that universe, right? Our narrow focus and the fact that we are a self-regulatory organization really does allow us to be nimble. We're able to move again from identification of red flags to disciplinary action when it's appropriate quickly. And um, we, it's not unusual for us to be able to uh, bar a broker within weeks of identifying the misconduct. And that that's not terribly unusual. Uh, it's, it's even less unusual when we're able to get to the finish line and get a broker who's um, improperly handling a customer's account uh, in months. All right, so I, I think that's a, a helpful conversation about where where there may or may not be overlaps between you know what the SEC is doing and and what Finra is doing um you know let's let's kind of you know keep funneling in a little bit here and and learn a little bit about Finra's structure you know I talked up top about some of the things that Finra does and some of uh, their their sort of regulatory mandate but talk to us a little bit about how Finra is is shaped the different the different units and and, and I realize uh, you know this may be sort of like a New Yorker's view of the world here um, <laughs> the head of enforcement is going to tell us about the rest of Finra I know you know it well uh, but but you know with whom do you regularly interact and what are the units or divisions within FINRA that, that sort of impact your work? Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you that the, the very heart of FINRA is our regulatory operations team. And I could talk for days about this because it's, it's our market regulation team, our member supervision, and enforcement. And the three of us are interdependent. I don't think that is something that's always been as as closely allied as it is now. Um, 
But to step back a little bit, let me talk to you a little bit about what market reg and member supervision do and how they feed into enforcement, because that's the relationship. So regulatory operations um, receives a ton of intelligence through, for instance, market regulations, trade surveillance. You talked a little bit about uh, the that at the top of the show and how market regulation in, ingests billions of lines of data using artificial intelligence and other algorithms to understand what's happening. Meanwhile, member supervision goes through a U4 and U5 filings and amendments, uh, thousands of them. Customer complaints, uh, they have an exam team that does uh, the exam work on the ground, uh, or I guess remotely during the pandemic, overseeing um, both the cause uh, program, so examinations that are done based on those U4s, U5s, and other inputs, and um, on a routine exam basis. So they look at what the different risks are among the firms, understands what compliance controls the firms put in place. And then even more inputs, right? We we receive so much intelligence and so much information. And through all of that, both market regulation and member supervision have a team of investigators who look at those inputs that trigger a red flag, whether it's through the surveillance program at market regulation, or it's through um, careful reviews of those U4s, U5s, or customer complaints or arbitrations that may signal a deeper issue. When those teams identify the red flags and the, they conduct their investigations, um, the right regulatory response might be something as simple as a conversation with a firm, right, to understand what's happening. Or it could be a regulatory notice if we notice a pattern of issues, but they really don't rise to the level of a disciplinary action. So there's no uh, ongoing customer harm, no significant risk to the industry, nothing like that. Um, it could involve a rule change if we're finding things uh, might need, might have changed so much that there there might be the need for an additional rule to cover a risk. Or for the worst cases, like I said, an enforcement investigation and possibly even a disciplinary action. So none of our work in enforcement really happens in a vacuum. This really isn't the view of, of the world from New Yorker, right? Um, <laughs> enforcement is the regulatory response for the worst misconduct that our reg ops teams identify. So whether it's indications of a market manipulation and market reg or excessive trading identified in member supervision, we do work closely with those teams to move those matters to resolution quickly. And um, our integrated reg ops really makes it possible for the most complex cases and our biggest cases to move from identification to investigation and then formal action really quickly so that when a disciplinary action is finalized, uh, the conduct is actually within recent memory of the reader, right? It's timely and that's important for us. Um, so like I said, it's not unusual for us to get a bar for a broker in months. And we have in the past couple of years barred more than one broker in a matter of a week. Uh, so this speed is really important to us when there's a risk of ongoing customer harm. So let me give you one example. We did bar a broker who was turning a customer's account. And what's notable in this story is that the funds in the customer account um, were part of a settlement to support the customer who was actually disabled in a terrible accident. So it was the settlement from that. And the customer were dis significantly disabled and the broker took advantage of that customer mm -hmm. and actually churned the customer's account, um, worked the, the assets down to almost nothing. And so we were able to quickly identify the 
the misconduct, right? We saw the red flags of what was happening. We dug in, investigated, and we got restitution for that customer. And that was, and barred the broker. And that is exactly the type of work I'm happy to do every day of the week. And we do, we're completely engaged in that mission. We're fortunate to have the ability to move quickly and nimbly through those types of actions and um, and very proud of that. I mean, I think the ability to move quickly and nimbly to address situations like that, which I mean, really, I think is is sort of FINRA doing it, its most fundamental, maybe its most important work, right? Not not to, mm-hmm. to take away from any of the larger cases, but no. you're really protecting retail investors in, in those kind of like churning situations or, you know, people taking advantage of, uh, of elderly investors or disabled investors. Um, but the ability to move quick and to be nimble like that requires an awful lot of organization within the enforcement team. So mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about how enforcement is structured. What what groups exist within enforcement? How do they work together? Let, you know, let's assume you have in front of you, you know, a, a circumstance that you think requires an enforcement mm-hmm. response. Who are the teams? Who are the players there? That's that is important, and let me back up a little bit and and just emphasize that relationship with both market regulation and member supervision. The vast majority of matters that enforcement handles are identified through those teams. So, what is absolutely critical is um, is a relationship with those teams to be able to uh, methodically escalate those red flags to a conversation with enforcement. And we've really uh, created those ties with both the market regulation team and the member supervision team to make sure that those are escalated through a central intake into enforcement. And we have conversations with those teams to, to make sure that we are all in agreement that the, this whatever they identify really rises to the level of misconduct that is appropriate for an enforcement investigation and potential disciplinary action. So now getting to enforcement, as we as a matter arrives at that gate, that intake to enforcement, we have enforcement is divided um, into five pieces to perform our two functions. Our two functions, again, are investigations and disciplinary actions. So those five pieces are lawyers, investigators, this is a mouthful, the office of the council to the head of enforcement or what we fondly call OCHE, um, operations, and then our strategic technology team. So we have a team of about 300 people total. And the majority, unsurprisingly, are lawyers who report up through a, a series of directors and chief counsels up to our deputy head of enforcement. We also have a litigation team uh, that unsurprisingly handles litigated matters, and they also support our attorney teams who who can litigate as well. Um, All the lawyers work hand in hand with our investigators, so our investigative team. And those investigators come from a wide variety of backgrounds, including former FBI agents or traders, investment bankers, accountants, consultants, compliance professionals from many different um, backgrounds. Uh, Many of those investigators are trained to handle our most complex investigations. And we have a group are focused specifically on data analytics and how we are integrating that into our broader program. The investigators report up through investigative directors up to our head of investigations. Then there's OCHE, the Office of the Council to the Head of Enforcement. And um, that office is an important team because in addition to working closely with our Office of General Counsel on policy, they review every single matter that we do in enforcement with a focus on consistency and um, in our rule application and how we talk about what we're what the cases are that we're bringing. So we're really focused on the clarity and how we present the case so that when you read through an AWC, 
and you get through all the facts and you get to the conclusion, it makes perfect sense. That's our goal. Um, then we have our operations team that makes sure we have the tools we need to perform and manage our functions, including the development of robust reporting tools to manage and to manage our own dockets. And um, unsurprisingly, too, the, that team's responsibilities have become even more important as we move towards a more integrated RegOps team. And certainly when we went remote for the pandemic, that team was critical. Um, finally, our ops team works closely with our strategic tech team. And our strategic tech group partners with FINRA's technology department to identify enforcement's needs and to drive the development of tools. And again, they um, coordinate with the rest of regulatory operations. So as a matter comes in, gets assigned to an attorney, sometimes to an attorney and investigator, if it's more, if it's um, robust enough, those uh, teams of two or more work through the process, keeping close touch with market reg and member supervision to make sure that we have a proper feedback loop. We don't want to be duplicating efforts. We don't want, um, we want to keep this as streamlined as possible. And we want to make sure that we're getting any additional information that could inform our investigation uh, until it gets to the finish line. And the finish line again is, could be a settlement, usually is a settlement. And every settlement and every complaint goes to our Office of Disciplinary Affairs that is not part of enforcement. That is a separate part of the organization. We're walled off from them and they review every matter that we bring to make sure it is fair and um, carefully applies the rules. So that's, a, that's our process in enforcement. It is, we, we do not stand alone. That's a, a kind of a great background on the way the system works. But, you know, Kurt and I as practitioners sometimes are much more focused on what are you guys going after, right? What is the conduct and, and the, the entities and the individuals that, that are of, of highest interest to you? And, and I know there are some priorities to the enforcement program. Can you talk to us about what those priorities are and, and what you're looking at on a regular basis? Sure. Um, I'll, let me talk to you about my four top priorities. The first is obtaining restitution for harmed customers. Uh, second is ridding the industry of brokers engaged in fraud or other egregious misconduct. And we talked a little bit about that. Um, this is particularly true for brokers with a history of violations or recidivists. Third priority would be protecting seniors and vulnerable investors. We're very attuned to that universe and unfortunately see them as, um, as the victims in most of our worst cases. And finally, ensuring the integrity of the markets. That's it. So those seem pretty straightforward in general, Jessica, but what, what worries you? What keeps you up at night uh, leading the enforcement group outside of kind of those, those general priorities? I think what keeps me up at night is what keeps most regulators up at night. What are we missing? And what helps me sleep at night is knowing how FINRA is dedicated to creating better integration of our regulatory operations teams. While enforcement investigations are important, what's most important is understanding what risks are out there and being able to deploy our resources to understand those risks and help the industry be compliant as quickly as possible. So enforcement shouldn't be the solution to everything. In fact, at FINRA, as a self-regulatory organization, our focus really is on making sure the industry is compliant. And I'll tell you, the vast majority of the industry wants to be compliant. So we've got a great partnership with the industry to understand what is out, what is happening in, in the industry 
to be able to assess where the risks are and then to be able to provide feedback to the industry of what we're seeing. And that can come in a number of different ways. That can come through compliance roundtables, which are exactly what they sound like, meetings with uh, the firm's compliance teams to let them know what we're seeing, to identify risk for them and to give them some uh, feedback of what could be done, what are best practices. Um, we have our exams. We have the uh, the individuals at member supervision who are connected to the firms to give real-time information to them of what we're seeing. And hopefully all that actually creates the level of compliance that doesn't require enforcement to be uh, to be deployed as often as it as it can. And realistically, there are brokers and firms out there who aren't intending on getting it right. And look, the first step should always be enforcement for those because we are here to protect investors. And, and that's really uh, where the hammer of enforcement should be deployed. But for the rest of it, it's really about um, being able to stem the risk and identify when things go wrong at the earliest possible moment so we can figure out what the right regulatory response is. That's helpful. Thank, thank you for the insight on sort of... Um you know the the things that maybe trouble you and and the places where you find comfort um you know it's good it's good for me as a practitioner to hear that and i think that a lot of those themes really resonate with me and with what i've seen in my experience with finra over the years uh i i do want to pull together a couple threads here um mm -hmm. to to try to get at a point that as a practitioner i i would like to understand better and so we've talked a little bit about the the sort of intersection with the sec or how finra and the sec play together uh, we've talked a little bit about some of FINRA enforcement's priorities, um, at which I think you described as, as evergreen. And, and when I look at them, I think I think they are evergreen. You know, what I'm wondering is is how they may manifest differently or shift subtly over time. So, uh, you know, obviously this year there's been an awful lot of change at the SEC. There's a new chair, a new director of enforcement. There are new heads of a bunch of the divisions at the SEC. And I wonder how uh, some of their... Uh, the things on which they're focusing, their regulatory agenda, some of the rhetoric that we hear mm -hmm. in speeches, how does that maybe trickle down or cross over to FINRA? And does that kind of change the way that you're looking at the role of enforcement or the things on which your team is focusing? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And it is true, new administrations definitely come and go. Um, mm -hmm. FINRA's mandate, on the other hand, stays the same. As a self-regulatory organization, we are committed to helping the industry stay compliant, like I said. And in enforcement, again, our job is to address the worst violations with timely and impactful disciplinary actions, and that really never changes. So currently, we do have a strong relationship with the SEC, and we're aligned in our mission as always. So um, in enforcement, we're aligned with uh, Gerbier Graywell and his team to help protect the front lines of investor protection. And look, I, I know what you're saying when you hear the different chair uh, speak for SEC and talk about, you know, what their concerns are or how their approach is, whether it's broken windows or not. And again, mm -hmm. I, I, I think we tend to be fairly consistent in what we do. Um, you know, the SEC has a really wide mandate, like I said, and FINRA's jurisdiction is limited to just the one critical part of the securities industry, the brokerage firms doing business with the public. That's it, retail investors. So um, as an SRO, we, we can be nimble and lean. And again, our role is slightly different because we really are working closely with the industry to f facilitate the compliance. And 
the investors really are better protected when we can do that. So, um, so we remain consistent. We try to stay um, predictable so that the industry and the investors know where we land. And at the same time, we are flexible enough to work with whoever's in the office of, of the SEC and be able to partner with them to help uh, protect those investors on Main Street and Wall Street. Excellent. I'd like to get into some of the detail and some recent uh, enforcement focuses of, of FINRA and, and the market at large. Uh, mm -hmm. Products and, and sales practices, right, are kind of those two pillars of enforcement that sit well within FINRA's oversight and, and in some cases, the SEC. For example, in June of this year, FINRA announced the result of a long-running targeted examination of unit investment trusts, or UITs. So we saw that as an example of where FINRA had focused very specifically on this specific product, and there is reportedly an effort to review and enforce rules on the recommendation and sale of so-called other complex products like a UIT. So, uh, you know, just to speak uh, generally, Jessica, what are FINRA enforcement's guiding principles when you look at specific products or targeted examinations similar to that UIT issue? Uh, let me start by saying that those UIT uh, cases, the sweep, uh, netted $16 million, over $16 million mm -hmm. in restitution to customers. So, very proud of that. Um, but to your question, um, it's really less about the products and more about the compliance responsibilities that the firms have um, and the reps have under our rules and under the federal securities laws. So at the top of that list is the responsibility of firms to tailor their supervision to the business they conduct, which includes the products they offer. So the more complex products really require a more robust supervision. Many of the new and more complicated products hold the promise of a high rate of return, which can be really attractive for investors and senior investors in particular, right? What isn't always as clear is the increased risk that comes with the potential increased return. So our RegOps teams ask the question of what the firms are doing to supervise the products they sell, how they train their sales force and how they supervise those sales and to whom are they selling? Are they, uh, are they, suitable suggestions? Are they suitable recommendations? Are they appropriate customers? So for UITs, for example, we did do the sweep and we did find supervisory failures. And uh, for those six firms with the most egregious failures, we brought the enforcement actions. And firms business could include strategies too. It doesn't have to just be products. So there's an obligation for strategies to be appropriate for the customers as well and appropriate for the customer's risk profile. So we're always focused on excessive trading, which happens to have significant overlap, again, with senior customers. And we recently brought a case involving excessive trading with average cost to equity ratios of 76%. So think about that. That means the account has to generate 76% of returns before the investor can even earn a profit. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. And so in that case, the firm is required to pay restitution of $1.7 million to harmed investors and a fine. And to be clear, we're not just going after the firms here. In that case, we charged two supervisors who ignored a literal parade of red flags. Okay, not literal. Who Supervisors who ignored a parade of red flags signaling excessive trading. And in earlier actions, we barred two of the reps for excessive trading and suspended two others. So we're always focused on not just the firms, but the individuals. And 
I think you mentioned something earlier about the fact that that's really where FINRA sweet spot is, right? We do do big firm cases, but we are the only ones at the front line. We're the only ones looking at the individual reps. I mean, the SEC does, but by by scale, that's our bread and butter. And those may not be considered the most you know, headline grabbing or sexiest cases, but they're absolutely important and imperative to get out individuals. It's also important to bring cases against firms, but for FINRA, the real important mandate for us is to make sure that we're tackling and identifying the individuals who are responsible for the actions. So, um, so that's where that's where our focus is. I, I think you managed to hit on all four of the enforcement priorities in in that response. <laughs> so well, 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 well done. That is not yeah. an accident, my friend. That's... <laughs> but I mean, for, first and foremost, I mean, you, right out of the gate, you talked about restitution. I think you said uh, 16 million returned to harmed investors through the the UIT sweep, uh, and and over 16 million. And, and that and that yep. is the first priority that you listed is is the importance of obtaining restitution. Um, you know, look, restitution isn't always the entire sanction in in an enforcement mm-hmm. action. So what happens with the the rest of the money that maybe isn't earmarked for harmed investors? So the rest of the money um, is very clearly uh, a fine. And we are, FINRA is very transparent about what we do. In fact, we have the FINRA's financial guiding principles, and that specifically talks about where our fine money goes. So our fine money can go, for instance, to developing um, education for investors. It can go to developing technology and infrastructure for our regulatory operations teams. And so all of that guidance is available actually on FINRA.org if you're interested in understanding where the fines go. But um, there's, there's no real mystery to that. Okay. And there's also actually, there's some good reporting on that. Our, our friend Mark Sheff over at Investment News, I know, always, <laughs> always writes it up every year when the report comes out. Uh, so let's transition uh, again to a new a new sort of topic in terms of your your mandate and FINRA enforcement. I mean, you talked a little bit earlier about how technology has changed the way that that you and your team do your job. Technology is also changing the way that the brokers you oversee do their job or, or offer services. Um, and, and that's where we kind of come to the, the intersection of, of FINRA and FinTech, in a sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just been a proliferation of new services, products, and, and apps in the broker-dealer space. Uh, we now have apps that, uh, that offer fairly traditional brokerage services. There are apps that offer so-called self-directed investment platforms. There are these sort of hybrid apps that are, that are robo-advisors. They're kind of like brokers. They're kind of like investment advisors, maybe. Uh, it's rapidly changing this space. And you know, I'm wondering, what do you think, what do you see as FINRA's role in this space? And what trends or technologies are you watching on the enforcement side? So I love this question because I was reminded of the late 90s. I wasn't a regulator then, but um, I, I remember when online trading first appeared. And so there's this Washington Post article from 1998, and the headline read, Investors are trading brokers for computers. You can look this up, it's out there. Uh, and it talked about the novelty of being able to use a computer to do the same trading that a broker did. And with the access to CNBC and all the information that came from there and all the research that's accessible online, look at that. You know, a customer can suddenly do their own trading. And it really was all new and 
even beyond that article, there was a lot of concern about what the future held and what those risks were. And at the end of the the day, the, the end of the world didn't happen, right? Regulators in the industry adapted. And so here we are, years later, many years later, and earlier this summer, uh, as you probably know, FINRA enforcement was uh, very focused on exactly that, like the trading platforms, how those have evolved. And it's really not just about the novelty of computers, it's about these sophisticated platforms. And throughout all those changes, the obligations remain exactly the same. You are responsible for supervising and being compliant with the rules uh, that we have at FINRA and the federal securities laws. That stays the same. So we are, though, looking at a couple of trends uh, and using the tools that we have at our disposal to understand them. So for instance, we talked about FINRA doing sweeps to understand areas of concern. And so right now we have a sweep focused on Finfluencers. I love that word. It's a fun word to say, but it is really an important area to understand. Um, by the way, all of our sweeps are posted on FINRA.org, and this is no exception. So social media has provided a new opportunity for firms to access customers. But as with every new opportunity, the rules still apply. You are still required to protect investors. So the sweep seeks to understand how the firms interact with the social media influencers or finfluencers, and whether there's compensation arrangements and how um, how they're passing customer data along. So all that is an important area to understand. And again, we're using the tools that we have and we're applying the rules that we have as well. And I mean, the other area that I would point you to is cybersecurity. FINRA has offered guidance to firms about how to protect information and where firms are at risk. And now we're going to look into whether there's actual compliance by the firms. And there may be enforcement actions related to that. We'll see. I think these are all really important spaces to watch. And we'll continue to watch as the industry evolves. And we will be there to protect investors and to help firms understand where their compliance risks are. I've been working hard to become a finfluencer, but I might need to rethink that. I mean, I, you know, I, maybe I'm going down the wrong path. I'm not sure. <laughs> Step carefully, <laughs> my friend. Got to turn this podcast into a finfluencing uh, breeding ground here. But all right, Jessica, I want to talk to you about something that is near and dear to Kurt's heart, and that is Reg BI. Yes. He has Got not it. stopped talking about this thing for more than a year. And I want to Got check it. in with you about Finra's focus on Reg BI enforcement. You know, I know the rule is relatively new, having come out, I believe, in the summer of 2020. Uh, and mm-hmm. we're kind of looking at how this enforcement and, and landscape and how Reg BI is going to be treated, not only in in enforcement actions, but also the, the market's response to those actions. So talk to us a bit about FINRA's role with respect to Reg BI. And if you can, you know, point out anything that Kurt has said in the past year about it that he's been wrong with, uh, I would really appreciate <laughs> it. I think I won't do that, but mm. I will tell you, uh, Reg BI is the SEC's rule. And because of that, we're really taking our cues from the SEC on every type of app, on every application of that rule. But let's step back a bit. To, to start with, FINRA's exam function is important in the Reg BI space. Our member supervision team has been working really closely with the industry to help them uh, understand the Reg BI and what their compliance obligations are. And in the past year, our exam teams have been reviewing the firm's compliance 
and helping them understand where there's gaps. So that's where we are now. Matters have not come to enforcement yet for um, for issuance. Uh, so there's really it's really early to talk about that. And frankly, we're going to be watching the SEC's application of the rule and their enforcement actions. So watch this space. We'll be following the SEC and more to come. So Jessica, I want to ask an unscripted, uh, to borrow a phrase, follow up here, uh, <laughs> which, which you can you can answer or not. Um, okay. I mean, with respect to to Reg BI, it it sort of doesn't cover everything that is within FINRA's scope in terms of suitability obligations. And I've heard you talk before about where, you know, the old rules may still be in place for certain brokers or or certain types of advice. So can you tell us what is still on your plate? Understanding that the bulk of what's covered by by Reg BI is sort of the SEC's rule, but I think some of it is still on FINRA's plate. At this point, yes. I mean, so the two areas that we're looking at for Reg BI in regulatory operations, so more broadly, are the form CRS compliance requirements and suitability. And our suitability rule um, is overtaken basically by Reg BI. When the SEC issued Reg BI uh, in the guidance, there was discussion about FINRA suitability suitability rule and the application of Reg BI exactly in that space. So when we're looking at suitability cases and the conduct um, is after the implementation of Reg BI, we're we're considering how that applies to, um, to cases that would formerly be brought under our suitability rule. And the good news for investors there is that the Reg BI allows us greater latitude in bringing, for instance, excessive trading cases because it really talks about uh, it doesn't include a control requirement. So in the past, suitability required us to prove that uh, a broker controlled the customer's account, and that became a very customer-specific analysis. But here we're really talking more about the strategy of an excessive trading um matter and that that becomes a little more manageable to bring and easier to prove that helps us to protect investors even better in a really important space to us like i said all right i think we uh, unfortunately have not uh, disproven anything kurt has talked about with reg bi sorry but sorry <laughs> in this Next segment, we're going to be working to bust some myths about FINRA. And Kurt, this might have to become a recurring uh, segment in our program where we get to talk to folks like Jessica and others who can help us understand some of the nuance and some of maybe the rumor or the the market positioning on, on some of these enforcement or other issues and really bust those myths about FINRA. So Jessica, we're going to hit you with a few quick hits here on what we've heard people are saying. I can't say it was Kurt or I, but people have Don't been shoot the messenger uh, <laughs> yeah. about uh, about FINRA. So number one, myth number one, a call from FINRA enforcement mm-hmm. means you're in for a bad outcome or result. So um, myth, that's a myth, uh, but not entirely. So a call for enforcement doesn't guarantee a disciplinary action. Not all matters out of enforcement become disciplinary actions, but I want to be clear an enforcement investigation means that you are no longer in a scoping investigation, or by that I mean one that follows the identification of a red flag. 
So typically, by the time you hear from enforcement, our reg ops teams have come to an agreement that the conduct looks like it might warrant our most significant regulatory response, so a disciplinary action. But it is not a fait accompli by any measure. There is still an investigation, and matters um, do leave enforcement as informal. Myth partially busted. All right, myth myth number two. Um, FINRA enforcement outcomes are unpredictable and sometimes inconsistent. Hmm. I hear you. And I've heard this criticism. And I will tell you that we are constantly working on improving. And we talked about our Office of the Council to the Head of Enforcement, or OCHE. We, we created that role and that group to look at all of our cases to help us achieve uh, predictability and some level of consistency. But um, if you're looking at precedent and and think it has to be identical cookie cutter cases, that's not going to happen. We're hoping that they're in, or we're working towards them being in the same ballpark, but uh, cookie cutter similarities, you won't find them. Every case is different and as satisfying as it would be for some to see identical finds and identical outcomes, um, there are not a set of identical facts. They just don't exist. So please know we take into account the unique facts and circumstances of every case. And we are always working towards a settlement document that has a foreseeable outcome. But here's another thing, settlement documents are negotiated so remember that as much as we'd love to put every little detail and fact into the document to help you understand what you're reading, people like our defense counsels here are working <laughs> with us to make sure that they don't have every fact. So it really is a kind of a, a push-pull to, to get it done. Our goal is, of course, to get the enforcement action done so that we can get the restitution back to, to customers. And sometimes that means... We're not going to get in as many facts as we want. I didn't expect that one to blow back on me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, all right, Chris, what's next on the menu? <laughs> Myth number three, maybe not about scale, but about timing. FINRA cases take mm -hmm. forever. Sometimes they just take too long. I would agree. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So I don't know that we can say myth busted or mm. not, but... Um, Sometimes they do take long. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, these matters are sometimes really complex and complicated. So it would be great if we could just send one request for information and be done. But sometimes we're talking about matters that have um, trade data, more trade data, customer for um, customer account statements and opening documents and multiple brokers and multiple representatives and all this is important because there cannot be a rush to justice here we really need to understand what is happening and be able to communicate that back it has to our, our outcomes have to make sense and part of that requires that we look at the information carefully so yeah sometimes it does take long. And I'll tell you, sometimes it takes long because we're dealing with the worst offenders who have no interest in making life easy mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. The longer they can stay in business, the longer they have an opportunity to take advantage of, of customers. And so we deploy as many resources as we can to get the information we need, and it can often be a, a bit of a dragged out battle. So. Um, those are the ones that are frustrating for us, but we are happy to deploy as many resources to moving those along as we can. But sometimes, no, FINRA cases don't take darn long time. They, they don't 
take long at all. One week to borrow a broker, I would say, is just as fast as you can possibly do. So when we get a broker out of the industry in a week, a month, or even a year, I'd say that's a great outcome. And that's really where we see success. Sounds like that myth is both busted and confirmed uh, in certain cases. <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> this is a very law school exercise of it depends, Amen. isn't it? Right. Amen. One of the other things that comes up a lot with with FINRA and kind of our fourth myth here is that FINRA enforcement is focusing on nabbing CCOs or going after the Ari Spiroses of the world in the compliance <laughs> function. Uh, is, is that a focus of FINRA's enforcement, just getting those chief compliance officers? No. Myth. Total myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, a, this is a, a myth that keeps regenerating and I understand, but the numbers don't prove that out at all. So for example, in 2020, FINRA brought 110 enforcement actions involving rules of uh, violations of rule 3110. So that's our supervision rule. And in only three of those matters did FINRA charge a CCO who was not also the CEO or president of a firm, okay? So supervisory responsibilities belong with the business line leaders, not the CCOs, not the CCOs. CCOs are are there to make sure firms are compliant. And we get that. Uh, They're an advisory role. We get that too. But the other side of that is that the CCO title doesn't insulate you from liability. If you're a CCO who lies, steals, or cheats, or if you're acting in a capacity other than a CCO. And if you're a CCO who has a a specific supervisory liability, we're not going to bring a case unless the discharge of those supervisory responsibilities isn't reasonable. Do you know why? That's the rule. <laughs> and if it's the right regulatory response, we'll do it then. But even then, there might be mitigating factors. So it, it's at the end of the day, what you just described is a myth, right? I get the concern. Being compliance is a tough place to be. You're between the sales force and the regulators. And, um, and there's a lot of perceived risk, but I'm telling you, our goal is to focus on the business line supervisory responsibilities. I think that that myth is solidly busted. I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to give candid responses to some of those myths. I mean, honestly, these are things that that we and others here in the market. So it's helpful just to get your your reaction. Um, but before before we sign off today, before we let you go, anything else that you'd like to touch on, or, or some things maybe that you're particularly proud of uh, during your tenure at Finra? We would have to have a whole nother podcast to talk about all the things I'm proud of about my time at Venra. I'll just focus on the one that comes to mind as we're slowly maybe moving back to um, to some sort of office environment. And that was enforcement's reaction to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, at the outset of the pandemic in March, we had to pivot in a matter of days, really, And I'm so proud of the team for being able to stand up a process where we can do on the record testimony uh, in a matter of days after we became an all remote environment. And we were ready to train our respondents and respondents council. We worked with the court reporting agency and we made that happen in an unbelievable short time. Why that matters isn't so much of the victory of getting to do on the record testimony through Zoom. It's about, again, protecting investors. We we need to continually move our investigations so they are timely, so that we do stop the misconduct as quickly as possible, so that we do provide information that we learn in the in of risks 
back to the industry and so that we do have a chance to get restitution for customers. So I'm, I'm really proud of that. Uh, it feels like we've been remote forever, but it really hasn't been. And I think part of the, the feeling that it's been forever is because we transitioned so well. So I'm particularly proud of our ability to stay on the front lines of investor protection, even during a pandemic. Yeah, well done. And congratulations to you and the entire team uh, for making that happen. It, it is important to have you uh, have you able to, to fulfill your role even during tough times. So congratulations to you. And thank you very much for coming on the program. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Jessica Hopper of FINRA. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu slash membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. Thank you.